Why don't you grab your Bible and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17 for this evening as we continue going right through the scriptures, verse by verse. Tonight we see poor Jeremiah get sort of the results or the response, I should say, from his most recent uh, sermon, you know, that he's about to give. We'll see that uh, this evening. And uh, we're gonna see some, uh, some pretty heavy stuff go down in Jeremiah's ministry. And he's gonna find himself maybe even somewhat discouraged and what have you, but his message is heavy. You know, um, when people give messages, it's, it's, uh, sometimes you have people that don't like what you're saying. <laughs> uh, you, a lot of pastors know what this feels like, I think. Um, or, you know, leaders of any kind. It, I think it was in uh, 1949, the New York Times reported of Winston Churchill, who had a woman hear, uh, hear him speak on something that she didn't like. And she came up, to, came up to Winston after his speech and she said, Mr. Churchill, if, if you were my husband, I'd put poison in your tea. And she, he very quickly looked back at her and said, woman, if you were my wife, I would drink it happily. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes people don't like what you have to say. And so they, they uh, have ill intent. We'll see that tonight in Jeremiah's ministry. People are not gonna like it. And we'll see what happens to him. Well, we learned on last uh, Wednesday night uh, in chapter 16 that Jeremiah had some personal restrictions from the Lord, that he wasn't, wasn't supposed to be married uh, and have kids. He wasn't supposed to feast, but he was also not supposed to go to funerals. Uh, just to kind of keep a monotone attitude as a single you know, prophet, just speaking the word of the Lord to the people. And, um, and so he goes on with his message and his message so far has been very heavy. Um, and it deals with the sin of the people. In fact, he gets very specific about what, what kind of sin and what was going on. And we'll see that here in chapter 17. So Jeremiah 17, verse one. There we read, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. And with the point of a diamond, it is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. So we, we see here sin and what they're doing. And we're gonna see really uh, four things that Jeremiah is gonna call out. Number one, if you're taking notes, notice with me, sin's permanence. Sin's permanence. Apart from the Lord, your sin is written, you know, with a, a pen of iron or a point of a diamond. You know, the diamond is the, is the uh, you know, the thing that you can cut other things with. It's the sharpest, most dense uh, material. And that's why they make diamond blades to cut through masonry and stuff like that. It's, it's, um, it's, it, the idea is it's kind of a uh, permanent. And it's written with an iron pen with a, a tip of, of a diamond uh, on, on the table of the hearts of the people. Um, when the Bible talks about the table of men's hearts, you might call that the memory. The part of you that remembers things, you know, um, and there's some good mentions, you know, like in the new covenant, one of the things the Lord would do would write the word of God on the table of men's hearts. The idea is the word would be brought back to memory. But here, man, God forbid that a person gets to a place where they've got their sin written permanently on the table of their hearts. That's the condition of the children of Israel. Now, that's an interesting thing about sin. Sometimes we, we think that it's a one-time deal where we engage in sinful behavior. But the thing is, it's amazing how you remember your sins. You remember the things. It leaves a, a permanent mark on your heart where you remember the things that you've done. And you might try to forget them, 
but man, your sins, well, why do they have a memory? Well, I believe it's because Satan spends most of his time day and night accusing the brethren day and night of their sins. Satan does not want you to, to uh, forget your sin, but he wants you to you know, wallow in your misery. And that's why he accuses you day and night. But here, Jeremiah's saying, man, you guys, the children of Israel, you've written this on the table of your hearts in permanence and upon the horns of your altars. Now, it's not the altars of the Jews in you know, Jerusalem uh, on the temple. It's actually speaking of the, their altars, the altars that they had built to Baal and Ashtoreth and all these other gods and goddesses of the Canaanites. And every time they worshiped those gods and goddesses, it's almost like the Lord is saying, yeah, um, those sins that you've done, all you can do with those altars is it'll write down your sins and it'll be left there in iron you know, pen, diamond tip on those altars as a reminder of your own sinfulness. You know, the pathetic nature of these altars of the Canaanite gods, what do those altars do for you? Well, we know nothing. Uh, the pagan gods were nothing. They had no power. They were deaf, dumb, and blind. And the Lord says there in the Psalms that those who make them are like unto them. You know, you're deaf, dumb, and blind if you worship these gods and goddesses and what have you. But what I love about the true altar, so you remember this says here in this verse, you know, it's written permanently on your altars. But don't you love the altar of the Lord? The, the, there in the temple in Jerusalem, they would, you know, kill a lamb on that altar and sacrifice it to the Lord. And the blood of the lamb would flow. And that blood would be the penalty paid, the price paid for the sin that was done. And the Lord, his way is so different than the world's way. While your sins will be permanently marked on the altars of the world, the Lord takes your sin and remembers them no more. Blots out your list of sins, you know, and he remembers them no more. He puts them as far as the east is from the west. Um, the, the futility of worshiping pagan gods and false gods as opposed to the true and living God. What's the greatest thing God has done for us? Well, that's a hard one to answer because he's done so many great things, but maybe it's just that, that he does that which no other God or goddess could even try to do because they're not even real, they're false. They promise big and deliver zero. But the Lord, the true and living God says, I will take your sins and I will put them in a bag, Micah talks about, uh, or Job talks about, and then Micah talks about how he'd then take that bag and throw them into the sea where no one could go and fish it up. It's there at the depth of the ocean where nobody can get it. Um, I love that about the Lord and our sin. So the Jews had crossed a line in that they rejected the Lord. When you, when you reject the Lord, you're rejecting his plan of salvation. His, you're rejecting his love for you and his wanting to deal with your sin. Uh, if you reject the Lord, you're on your own with your sin. Your sin will be listed. Your sin will be remembered. And someday you'll stand before the great white throne judgment where all of your sins will be remunerated. It's almost like you can picture a, a movie being played of your life, of all the sinful things you'd done. And there you'll have to stand before the Lord and know that you're judged in your sin. But one of the greatest works that God has done is to die on the cross for our sins where they'll be remembered no more. Man, I love that. So the first thing for the Jews here, because they were turning to the pagan altars, the first thing we see is the permanence, sin's permanence. 
The second thing we see is sin's perverseness. <laughs> right here in verse two, it says, you know, they were doing this upon the horns of their altars while, verse two, whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. Now, for a nominal Bible reader, you'd kind of go, the kids would remember what? Their altars and their groves, whatever. That doesn't mean anything. Well, it does. The altars and specifically the groves were the place where they would practice all kinds of sexual immorality. Um, it was like these seances up in the woods and these people would dance nakedly and have sex um, you know, outside in these sort of pagan rituals and the kids were there seeing their parents do these things. Um, it was a great perversion. Some scholars believe that the parents would even engage the children in these sexual practices, um, which was the next level of perversion. And that's why the Lord calls them out. He says, your children remember the altars and the groves by the green trees upon the high hills. The high places, the groves, that's where all this took place. And the kids remember uh, what, so not only would the, you know, their, their sins be listed on the altars and on the table of their hearts, but their kids would remember their sins. Uh, and, and so that just speaks of the high level of perversion that the Jews had reached. Uh, so pagan were they. Now, before we're too hard on them, what about our culture? You know, as Netflix re releases these, um, you know, really horrifyingly bad you know, movies with little girls and, you know, making them like sex, sex objects. This is just the level of perversion we've reached and uh, child pornography. And then, and then there's this whole pedophilia and it's being, becoming more and more accepted. And there's a movement uh, afoot that is trying to normalize, you know, uh, sex with younger people. And it's really tragic. And we're seeing that kind of stuff happen. You know, Oregon's trying to legalize you know, prostitution and sex stuff here in our, in our state. And uh, we like to be the first at being stupid. You know, we've legalized, you know, um, meth and coke and uh, heroin and all this stuff. And we've, you know, started with legalizing marijuana. But I think um, our, if our state legalizes, you know, sex, uh, you know, for, for money uh, and all this, it's just gonna be one more notch in our demise as a state. Um, by the way, a lot of people are moving out of Oregon by the droves because of our stupidity. And um, uh, we're seeing that uh, even in our church, <laughs> we're seeing Athey Creekers saying, we're out of here, man. And they're going to Boise and they're going to Texas. And uh, I understand, I understand. It is funny though, because, um, you know, um, Deb and I, we moved here on purpose. Uh, years ago in 96, we moved here because it is a corrupt and tweaked out city. And we're trying to preach the gospel where it needs to be preached the most, I think. Um, when I moved in 1996 with Deb and the kids, you know, Portland and Seattle were the least church cities in America. And that's why we, uh, we moved here. We needed Jesus here. And it's really interesting because what I see over the last 25 years of being here is I see a, a great divide. We're having great blessed uh, success here, seeing people come to Christ at Athey Creek. And honestly, not just Athey, but a lot of churches here in the Portland area, we're seeing blessing. Since we moved up here, it's great. More and more believers, more and more people getting saved. But at the same time, we're seeing more and more perversion and more and more weirdness. And, um, but, but it's a divide. Um, we're starting to see the, the, it's like the parting of the Red Sea, you know. And, and in, in Portland, if you're gonna be a Christian, it can cost you. 
And if you're watching from some of these other states, like the Bible Belt, like the Belt Buckle, Oklahoma City, if you're in Oklahoma or, or you know, in some of these more Christian you know, places, um, pray for the brothers and sisters in Portland because there's people who are really being persecuted here in our city uh, and uh, for, for their faith in Christ and jobs are being put on the line and you know, um, perhaps maybe more than just about anywhere in the nation. Uh, you know when the president brings up your city all the time about being the worst place in the state, in the, in the United States, uh, you, you got a problem. Uh, but that's why we're here. And I hope those of you Athey Creekers that are sticking it out realize this, we have a mission field here uh, because sin is you know, perverse here. And we're seeing the, the problems that come from sin, just like Jeremiah really. So he calls out sin's permanence in verse one, sin's you know, perverseness, verse two, but there in verse three now we see sin's plunder. Sin will take plunder uh, from your life and from your people. Check this out in verse three. Oh, my mountain, that would be Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Oh, my mountain in the field will I give thy substance and all thy treasures to the spoil and thy high places for sin throughout all thy borders. You know, Jerusalem in the time of, Je uh, of Solomon was one of the wealthiest places on the planet. But by the time Jeremiah gets here, they were getting closer and closer to being wiped out. And ultimately Jerusalem would be left a, just a dump heap. No wealth, no beauty, just a pile of rubble. And that's gonna happen shortly after Jeremiah prophesies this. And it's because of their sin. And so Jeremiah points out sin's permanence, sin's per, uh, perverseness, sin's plunder. But fourthly and finally, he shows us sin's prison. That's where sin leads you. Satan wants to get you tangled up in sin so he can in bondage, put in bondage the people of, of, of the story here. It says in verse four, and thou even thyself shall discontinue from thine heritage and I, uh, that I gave thee. And I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not, for you have kindled a fire in mine anger which shall burn forever. Um, the Lord says, basically, you're going off into captivity, into Babylon as prisoners, slaves. And that's what sin does. Sin puts you in bondage. Just like Samson. Remember the first thing that happened when Samson finally was taken because of his sin? He was blinded and bound up with chains and fetters and was grinding at the wheel day and night. And that's what sin does. It blinds, it binds, it grinds. It's, it's really true. And um, people don't remember that when they're thinking, should I do this thing and sin against the Lord? Um, but these people had long forgotten uh, what it felt like to walk with the Lord. They, they'd become good at putting on pretense of religion, but really they were just worshiping these false gods. And thus their sin would lead them to prison, uh, to bondage. Well, verse five, thus saith the Lord, cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Boy, there's a verse worth memorization. Uh, verse five of chapter 17. Thus saith the Lord, cursed be the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm and whose heart departeth from the Lord. I hope you remember that we really shouldn't be putting our trust in man or the arm of man. The arm of man speaks of the strength of man. And, uh, you know, we can do that. And 
you know, we start putting our strength uh, as our financial portfolio and we're gonna be good. Or we put, our, we put our trust in our ability to be ready for catastrophe or save up money or that we're smart enough to get through things. But that's just putting your trust in man. And you know, there's, there's been a few little snapshots in 2020 that have reminded us that we're, it's not really in our control. I mean, if there's one thing we saw in 2020 is that there's things that are gonna be out of our control. And, and if it's bad enough, you know, we, we have this sort of sense of security, like we can take care of ourselves and we're all good. But I think 2020 reminded us, well, we're kind of not. And there's a lot of things that could actually happen that might just quickly overwhelm us. But that's where the Christian, we have the advantage. We don't put our trust in men or the arm of men. We put our trust in the true and living God. And we know that he's working all things together for good for those who called, are called, those who are uh, called according to his purpose. Man, the Lord's gonna work it out. He's got us. We put our trust in the Lord. I hope you remember that. Don't put your you know, security in stuff or the things that you have or your smarts or your money or your house or your you know, fortress, whatever you've built. Man, put your trust in the Lord. That's the only thing you can really trust. And that's really what the Lord is saying because catastrophe is about to strike here in Jerusalem. And so he says, the Lord, uh, thus saith the Lord, cursed is the man that trusts in man. You're cursed if you're putting your trust in men. For verse six, he shall be like the heath. Um, The Greek word there is an interesting, or pardon me, the Hebrew word there is an interesting word that really tells us that he's talking about a tumbleweed. You know, picture the old west town with a tumbleweed blowing down the main street because it's a ghost town. Um, It says, thus saith the Lord, verse six, for he shall be like a, a tumbleweed in the desert, a heath. And he shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in, the, in a salt land, and not be inhabited. So who's the person that's not walking with the Lord? They're gonna be like a tumbleweed, lost, and without any you know, hope of wetness and moisture. But you're in a dry old Western town. That's the picture that he's painting here. But after giving the, the cursed person, Then he talks about the blessed person. He says in verse seven, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful or anxious in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The cursed person should be afraid and it's gonna be dry and parched places with no hope. But the the, the righteous person, the person that puts their trust in the Lord, they'll be like a tree planted by a river where the roots go down deep. And even during drought, because it's planted by the river, it's gonna survive. Um, I wonder if Jeremiah borrowed this from the psalmist who, you know, um, I will delight in the law of the Lord. I will meditate day and night. And like a tree firmly planted by the river, That's what the psalmist, Psalm chapter one talked about. Maybe Jeremiah is sort of borrowing that imagery, but he's saying he gives us not only is the tree planted there, but the roots go deep down by the river and thus it stays green and it will not stop from yielding fruit. That's the thing I wanna be. I wanna be a firmly planted tree planted by the river of water. How do you do that? How do you become that tree that's planted by the river? Well, the psalmist gives us the answer. Those who delight in the law of the Lord. That's, that's the wording there in Psalm 1. And the law speaks of the word of God. I will delight in the word of the Lord, then I'll be like a tree 
firmly planted by the river whose roots go down deep and never go dry. Um, how does a person stay from becoming dry in this dry and weary land that we live in, full of sin and debauchery like Jeremiah's day? You put your trust in the Lord and the way you do that is by putting your heart in the word of God, letting the word of God dwell in you richly and letting it uh, just you know nourish you up in faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's so much benefit really from you know getting into the scripture and looking to the word of God. I hope you can see that even Wednesday nights, there's something about it. You know, if you take the time on these Wednesday nights to go through the word, have you felt recharged? Have you felt your faith kind of built up and even your heart starts to stir about the Bible? Um, that's the way we should live. You and I should live with that sort of that zeal and that joy that comes from immersing ourselves in the word of God. And it shouldn't just be here on Wednesday nights, but it should be daily devoting time to scripture. And then you'll be like that tree firmly planted by the river where the roots uh, run deep. And even in the biggest drought, you still got the word that's your lifeline and it brings forth good fruit in your life. Man, I love that. The word of God, Jeremiah is echoing the psalmist there. He then goes on and talks about the heart of man, verse nine. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. We read this a couple Sundays ago and we saw that the heart is desperately wicked, but there's good news. The Lord is into heart transplants and he'll exchange your stony heart for a heart of flesh and he'll change your heart's desires and he'll change your heart's you know, uh, issues. He'll fix those heart problems. And if you missed that, you can uh, go on our website and uh, you know, watch that, that uh, Issues of the Heart sermon that we did on Jeremiah 17, nine and 10. But he goes on on that same notion. He says, verse 11, as the partridge sitteth on eggs and hatcheth them not, um, so he that getteth riches and not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days and at his end shall be a fool. Now there's all kinds of debate on what this is talking about, a partridge laying eggs or doing eggs and you know, a partridge in a pear tree, Merry Christmas. What's going on here about this partridge bird? Well, um, there's debate on the partridge and laying on the eggs of another bird. Does that even happen biologically? Does it ever, you know, there's all this debate. That's not really the point here. The point is that it's almost saying that they, they got something that wasn't really theirs and they thought, well, it's ours. And then, um, you know, uh, eventually you lose that stuff anyway. Um, Ill-gotten gain is the idea there. So this partridge, you know, you'll notice some of the words in this verse, verse 11 are uh, in italics. You know, as the partridge sitteth on eggs, on eggs is in I, I, italics, and hatcheth them not is, is in italics. So the Hebrew is a little confusing on this for us. And we're kind of like, what's going on? Basically the partridge that raises the little hatchlings, um, you know, uh, as their own, well, eventually they'll, they'll go away when they realize they're not a partridge in a pear tree. Uh, and so the partridge loses all the work they did and it's foolish. Um, that's the person who trusts in their heart. Uh, it's like ill-gotten gain that's not gonna bring forth good fruit. That's, that's sort of a messy way, I think, uh, for me to try to explain what's being said here, but it's just ill-gotten gain that was not really meant to be. And people uh, do that all the time. 
Watch out for that. Don't let your heart be wicked and deceitful and lure you into those kinds of things is sort of the idea. Well, it goes on here and says in verse 12, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Um, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Um, you know, it's interesting because their high places moved around where they worshiped their pagan deities and what have you. But the glorious high throne from the beginning was the place of the sanctuary, the, the temple in Jerusalem. But the hope of Israel is the Lord. Uh, I love verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. Um, you know, the idea is uh, that they'll be written in the earth. You know, it's, it's interesting what gets written. If you ever wanna do an interesting study of the Bible is look at what, what has been written. Names written, list of stuff written. You know, your name written in the Lamb's book of life uh, or the, the sins that you've done written in a book. And when you become a believer, your, your sins are blotted out. Um, there's some interesting things about this, but these people who are departing from the Lord, their names are written in the earth. Uh, that's not something you wanna have happen. Um, and, and the idea is they're doomed. They're gonna do, be doomed because of their sin. And Jeremiah's calling them out again on that. And, and he, he echoes back to Jeremiah 2.13, where they had forsaken the fountain of living waters for broken down cisterns. Remember that study we did on a Sunday quite a few weeks ago now? Um, he's reminding that they forsook the fountain of living waters there at the end of verse 13. Um, how foolish is that when people forsake the Lord? He's the source of everything good. Don't be the person who wavers back and forth, looking to the world for answers and then realizing it's dry and barren. So you go back to the Lord for a little while and get a few drinks and feel re refreshed only to go back to the world. Uh, that's what these people had done year after year, decade after decade. Finally, they had reached the end. And this is why Jeremiah is saying, you guys are all doomed. Now, because Jeremiah is saying how doomed they are, I wonder if he starts thinking, man, am I doomed too because I live amongst, amongst this people? Well, this is where you hear Jeremiah sort of say, Lord, can you kind of take care of me? Check it out. It's verse 14. Jeremiah says, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. Behold, they say unto me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hastened from, the, uh, from being a pastor to follow thee, neither have I desired the woeful day. Thou knowest that which came out of my lips was right before thee. Be not a terror unto me, thou art my hope in the day of evil. Let them be confounded that persecute me, but let not me be confounded. Let them be dismayed, but let not me be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of evil and destroy them with double destruction. Ha, Jeremiah is kind of changing his tune. We saw him interceding on behalf of the people last week where he's like, Lord, come on, bless them, cover them, but, or forgive them even. But now he's saying, Lord, I know that they're headed for doom, but protect me and give them double destruction. <laughs> um, maybe he's kind of thinking, put them out of their misery, Lord, but don't, don't, don't do me, me that way. Uh, I wonder, sometimes I think people get nervous about that. Does the Lord ever destroy the righteous with the wicked? 
And the answer is no. And I believe Jeremiah was nervous, but I think he could have trusted and said, the Lord's gonna get me through this time. But I don't blame him at all. This is a scary time for him to be alive. Some of you might be a little nervous like Jeremiah thinking, man, we're living in crazy days. It's hard to be a Christian today. Uh, but just put your trust in the Lord and don't, don't worry, he's got you. Put your trust and your hope in the Lord. Well, verse 19, thus saith the Lord unto me, this is the answer of the Lord, go and stand in the gate of the children of the people whereby the kings of Judah come in and they which go out and all the gates of Jerusalem and say unto them, hear ye the word of the Lord, ye kings of Ju Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that enter in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath, uh, the Sabbath day, nor bring it by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day. Neither do you any work, but hallow ye the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they obeyed not, neither inclined their ear, but made their necks stiff that they might not hear nor receive instruction. And it shall come to pass, if you diligently hearken unto me, saith the Lord, to bring in no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work therein. Then shall there enter in the gates of the city kings and princes sitting upon the throne of David, riding the chariots in chariots and on horses. They and their princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the place uh, places about Jerusalem and from the land of Benjamin and from the plain and from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices and meat offerings and incense and bringing sacrifices of praise unto the house of the Lord. But if you will not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath day and not bear a burden, even entering in the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. Brother, I'm confused. Jeremiah, one minute he's tell, the Lord tells him, don't even pray for these people. And, and then the next minute he's preaching about keep the Sabbath and things will be great. But then the Lord says, but they're already doomed. Which one is it? Well, one of the things when we started the book of Jeremiah that I told you that you kind of need to remember, tuck away, is that Jeremiah is not written in a linear fashion, you know, like, um, like a story unfolds in sort of a narrative. Jeremiah, these are things that have happened with Jeremiah over the years. And this is one of those times where Jeremiah was told to go stand in the gates of the, the city near the temple and preach and say, remember the Sabbath. Don't be breaking the Sabbath. And if you listen to this, you'll be blessed and there'll be princes riding in horses that are Jews and it'll be successful and a glorious city. But as soon as you forsake the Sabbaths, then you're gonna go down. So this was at some point in Jeremiah's ministry. It's probably earlier that this part was written. But a lot of people get confused when they read Jeremiah because uh, they don't realize the sections are not necessarily in chronological order of how they happened. So you kind of take this chapter and you realize it's really about the keeping of the Sabbath. Was that a big deal? Of course. One of the things um, that put the Lord's timing of their captivity in Babylon for 70 years was because they, they didn't keep those years of the Sabbath year. You know, with their land staying fallow on the seventh year, they just blew that off for many, many years. And so the, they owed the Lord 70 years because of those 70 times they were supposed to let the land go fallow. 
And so the Lord says, okay, you owe me 70 years and that's what you're gonna do. They took him off to Babylon. We'll see that later on here in Jeremiah. But all that to say, the Sabbath was the, uh, was the issue here and the people would not listen. And they, uh, it was one of the big 10 commandments, but they still totally blew it off and could care less. Well, chapter 18, the word of the Lord, which came to, uh, to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise, go down to the potter's house and there will I cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels and the vessel on the wheels uh, of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again to another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in mine hand, O house of Israel. We looked at this on Sunday uh, and we took a field trip to the potter's house. And if you missed that, you should definitely uh, load up on that teaching. Uh, and it's important to understand God's sovereignty and how he can make of your life whatever vessel he wants to. And he's got the right to do that. And we talked about that. Uh, but also those of you that have been broken uh, through life. And what does the Lord do with the broken vessel? Uh, there's some good news for you. And we saw that on Sunday. But he continues that narration with the potter and all that in chapter 18. Let's continue to read. It says in verse seven, at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith, I said I would uh, benefit them. Now, pause there for a second. This is the word repent, and it's one of those words that's translated from the Hebrew that might be unfortunate when it says repent, because we use the word repent to mean only to change directions in sin. But it doesn't mean just with sin. The word in the Hebrew here means changing direction. Well, the Lord says he never changes, Pastor Brett. It says here, the Lord, I will repent or change directions. You have to understand, people get all up in a tizzy about this stuff and they shouldn't. The idea of the Lord repenting, the word is relenting uh, also. The Lord relented or is going to relent, not just repent. In fact, if you look up in a Hebrew dictionary, this word, um, the word is relent. That's what they say as a definition. Um, but it's more of an if-then statement. Uh, this is where hopefully I can help clear up the confusion. Uh, does the Lord repent and change direction? He does when he makes a conditional promise. If you follow me and keep my commandments, then I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna go this direction and bless your socks off. But if you worship these pagan deities and false idols, then I'm gonna go this direction. So it's based on them flipping the switch. Are you gonna walk with me, flip the switch with blessedness and holiness, then I'm gonna bless you. But if you flip the switch to sin, then I'm gonna change my direction. It's an if then, if you do this, then I'm gonna do that. But if you do that, then I'm gonna do this. And so the Lord's actions are based on what they chose to do. And again, it gets down to, you know, we talked about God's sovereignty. The potter could do whatever he wants, but here the Lord is saying, but also you have your own little miniature sovereignty as people. You can do whatever you want. You can be sinful little rascals, but it's gonna cost you and it's gonna be brutal. And if you do that, then I'm gonna turn from you and you're gonna be on your own. But if you walk with me, then I'm gonna 
bless you and cover you and protect you. So uh, don't get all upset about this, the Lord changing. I, the Lord, never change. The Lord never changing is the idea that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, his character, his nature, his plan, his purpose, it's all the same. But when it comes to his response to human nature, there is a certain you know, bit of sovereignty, if you would, that man has in their own little world. They can do whatever, you can be a you know, Charles Manson or a Adolf Hitler if you want to, but then the Lord's gonna change his, his direction for you once you make that choice. That's what this is talking about here. Verse 11, now therefore go to speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem saying, thus saith the Lord, behold, <clears throat> I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, there's no hope, but we will walk after our own devices and we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, ask ye now among the heathen who hath heard such, a th such things. The virgin of Israel hath done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow of Lebanon which cometh from the rock of the field? Or shall the cold flowing waters that come from another place be forsaken? Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to vanity, they have caused them to stumble in their ways from their ancient paths, to walk in paths in a way not cast up, to make their land desolate and a, a perpetual hissing. Everyone that passeth thereby shall be astonished and wag his head. I will scatter them with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. The, the, the Lord says, turn and follow me. But the people say, nope, there's no hope for us. You know, that, that, I marked that in verse 12 where it says they said there's no hope because this attitude never works out well. It's never helpful to say there's no hope because with the Lord, there's always hope. We always have hope when God's involved. But if you take the Lord out of the equation, then you might be right. And I think that's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies sometimes where a person doesn't realize they're just speaking to their own doom. There's no hope, so we're just gonna keep doing what we're doing. And they're, 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 you know, it's like that's where Satan wants you to be. He wants to discourage you to that point where you really feel like there is no hope. And somebody could come and say, turn and confess your sins and the Lord will give you a brand new start. But people think that's nah, too good to be true. There's no hope. Man, never let yourself get to that position where you don't believe that there's any hope left for you. The Lord's grace is sufficient for you. It's, it's able to do everything you'll need it to do. Um, the Lord is hopeful. And I love that about our Lord. There's a few other things here that the people did. There's this language about the snow of Lebanon and the paths that they would hike there in the Northern regions uh, near Mount Hermon in Israel. And, and you take these normal paths, but, they say, but, but those paths have the bubbling brooks of the snow from the Lebanon. I've been up on, you know, um, that region, uh, by the Golan Heights, Mount Hermon, there's a, there's a ski resort up there. And there's a little literal ski lift where you can snowboard up there. And I, I took the lift up to the top of Mount Hermon because I wanted to be up at the very top. And uh, it's an amazing view, huge, and it's the highest point in Israel. But because there's a lot of snow there, there's a lot of snow runoff and there's these babbling brooks that end up down in the, the northern part of Israel, the southern part of Lebanon. 
And so there were ancient paths where people could go and you could always just go along and have nice drinks along the way, fill up your canteen on the hike. But some of these people went off those paths and they went away from those normal places and they ended up being dry and not having anything. That's the idea here. And so Israel leaving the ancient paths, and by the way, I hope you're not leaving ancient paths. I hope you're sticking with the old paths of faith and not going with this new liberal theology that's out there in so many churches where they're just bailing on the Bible and coming up with religion in their own little brains. Man, don't do that. Stay with the ancient paths where the bubbling water is. But these people, nope, they went their own way. And so then it says, um, the Lord then would make their land desolate. And verse 16, there would be a perpetual hissing by everyone that passes by and they'll wag their heads. Boy, are they suddenly snakes slithering around? Is that what's going on? Well, the word hissling, we could translate also as whistling and the wagging of the head, we would call it shaking the head. So if you could picture, people would look at the Jews and their desolation and people would go, that's the idea. Shaking their heads in disbelief, like what? Israel's what? They're toast. Like that's the hissing, it's whistling and shaking their heads in disbelief. That Israel that was once so blessed would become so scattered and so desolate. And for 1900 years, the Jews being scattered all over the earth, it's called the diaspora, much of the world, just said, those Jews. And even to this day, people kind of marvel at the Jews and their history, if they know their history. But all that's a result of what Jeremiah said would happen had they not you know, accepted the Lord's plan for them. And they wouldn't. And so they would be scattered. Verse 17, I will scatter them like the east wind. Well, then verse 18 said, they come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah. Let's kill Jeremiah, let's get Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest nor counsel from the wise, nor the word come from the prophet. Come, let us smite him with the tongues uh, of the tongue and let us uh, not give heed to any of his words. Give heed to me, O Lord, uh, now Jeremiah says. So the people say, let's do, do in Jeremiah this prophet of doom. Let's, get, let's leave the other prophets to tell us the lies that we like. And the priests, they're the ones we'll follow, but not this Jeremiah. So now Jeremiah, verse 19, cries out, give heed to me, O Lord, and hearken to the voice of them that contend with me. Shall evil be recompensed for good? For they have digged a pit for my soul. Remember that I stood before thee to speak good for them and to turn away thy wrath from them. Therefore deliver up their children into the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword and let their wives be bereaved of their children and be widows and let their men be put to death. Let their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when thou shalt bring forth or bring a troop suddenly upon them. For they have digged a pit to take me and hid snares for my feet. Yet Lord, thou knowest all their counsel against me to slay me. Forgive not their iniquity, neither blot out their sin from thy, thy sight, but let them be overthrown before thee. Deal thus with them in the time of thine anger. Question, is Jeremiah wrong to pray for their doom and demise and destruction? Well, Brett, you know, they're trying to kill him and it sounds like he wants vengeance from their wanting to kill him. He used to say, Lord, kill them. I don't believe Jeremiah is wrong to pray this and I'll tell you why. 
because the Lord says he's already gonna do all this. This is Jeremiah slowly but surely syncing up with the Lord's plan and purpose. It finally gets to the place where Jeremiah's like, okay, Lord, all this stuff that you said you're gonna do to these people, go ahead and do it. That's what he's saying. It's Jeremiah syncing up with his will. Did you know that's gonna happen to you and me? Right now you might say, well, Lord, that's unrighteous for cancer to happen to people. And uh, why is there disease in the world? And why are there things that are um, you know, a problem uh, for, for good people? And I've already told you there are no good people in the world, the Bible says. But you know, this whole thing, why does the Lord allow suffering? And, but all I know is we will eventually come to the place where Jeremiah is and say, Lord, cancer, all this stuff, righteous and true are your judgments. We don't know why the Lord allows these things. And he does even allow bad things to happen to his people people that he loves and cares for. And there's a purpose that's divine that we will not always know or very sometimes rarely even know. Why does the suffering happen? But someday we'll all say, Lord, you knew exactly what you were doing. In a way, Jeremiah, we see him sort of syncing up with the Lord and saying, Lord, what you've been saying, yep, that's what needs to happen. Um, It sounds brutal, but it's Jeremiah finally realizing this is what the Lord is gonna do, whether he likes it or not. He's the potter and he can do whatever he wants with the clay. Well, this chapter, chapter 18 is about the potter, but the the, the pottery imagery keeps going. Remember chapter 19, we touched on it Sunday, uh, the message there of the pot. Let's take a look in Jeremiah 19, verse one. It says, thus saith the Lord, go and get a potter's earthen bottle and take of the ancients of the people, that's the elders of Israel and the ancients of the priests. And go forth to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the east gate, and proclaim there the words that I shall tell thee. And say, hear ye the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring evil upon this place, the which whosoever heareth, his ears shall tingle, because they have forsaken me and have estranged this place and have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers have known nor the kings of Judah and have filled this place with the blood of innocents. Remember they they sacrificed babies in the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna or hell as we talked about on Sunday. Um, That's what's, what's being referred to here is the killing of children. They, verse five, have built also high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came it into my mind. Uh, By the way, the Lord never uh, condoned human sacrifice. The only time he did was when he himself became a human and gave his own life as a human. That's the only time. All the rest of the Bible never. What about, you know, um, Jephthah, the story of Jephthah? Uh, Well, I don't believe that was ended in sacrificing of of his daughter there in the book of Judges. Um, And if you want, you can listen to that teaching and you'll hear the full story on that. But that was never God. That was Jephthah's stupid vow that he made. Even if he did do that, God never asked for it. And here the Lord says, you know, I've never uh, asked for you to sacrifice your children. Uh, That never even came into my mind, the Lord says there in verse five. Verse six, therefore behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that this place shall no more um, be called, the, uh, called Tophet, uh, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the council of Ju- Judah and Jerusalem because um, 
and uh, pardon me, uh, Jerusalem in this place, and I will um, cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies. And by the hand of them that seek their lives and their carcasses will I give to be meat for the fowls of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone that passeth thereby shall be astonished and hiss because of all the plagues thereof. Remember to whistle in astonishment. Um, that's the idea. Verse nine, and I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. Cannibalism, and this actually happened in Jews' history where they were under siege and they began to eat each other because they had no more food. Horrible story. Um, I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons, verse nine, the flesh of their daughters. They shall eat everyone the flesh of his friend in the siege and straightness wherewith their enemies. Um, and they, they that seek their lives shall straighten them. Then shalt thou break the bottle in the sight of the men that go with thee. So Jeremiah is talking about all this horrible stuff that's gonna happen. And then he's supposed to smash the bottle that he's carrying. Verse 11, and, they say, and, and then thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, even so will I break this people in the city as one breaketh a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet till there be no place to bury. Thus will I do this uh, unto this place, saith the Lord, and to the inhabitants thereof, and even make this city as Tophet. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled as the place of Tophet, because of all the houses upon whose roofs they have burned incense unto all the hosts of heaven and have poured out drink offerings unto other gods. Then came Jeremiah from Tophet, whither the Lord sent him to prophesy. And he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said all to the people. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the evil that I have pronounced against it because they have hardened their necks and that they might not hear my words. So Jeremiah chapter 19 is the breaking of the potter's earthen bottle and uh, smashing it in the Valley of Hinnom saying, you're all going down, this is the end of the story. Well, this is where Jeremiah gets a response, a reaction from his sermon. And it's uh, sort of centered around a guy named Pashur. Let's take a look, chapter 19 verse, or ch chapter 20. We're moving, look at this. Chapter 20, verse one. Now Pashur, the son of Immer, uh, the priest who is also chief governor in the house of the Lord heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur smote Jeremiah the prophet, put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. And it came to pass on the morrow that Pashur brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then said Jeremiah unto him, the Lord hath not called thy name Pashur, but Megor Misaviv. Another Bible name you might wanna give your children if you're expecting, uh, Megor Misaviv. Uh, why? Well, it's funny, this name that God gives to this, this uh, priest, Pashur, his name means terror uh, on every side. Some of your moms are saying, I probably should have named Junior that uh, terror on every side. Uh, but that, that's what the Lord, the Lord gives the name. He's a terror on every side, this Pashur. He was the high priest. He was the governor of the house of the Lord. And he, he gets Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, come here. Jeremiah comes and after giving a sermon and he punches him in the face. 
That's what happens here. Pashur just punches Jeremiah in the face and then chains him up and puts him in prison. The next day pulls him out and Jeremiah comes out and says, guess what? The Lord just changed your name, Pashur. Um, you are now called terror on every side. You know what's interesting about this? Um, Jeremiah gets a bunch of flack. You know, notice with whom the persecution originates. It's the religious dude. It's the organized religion of the day that punches Jeremiah in the face. You know, today the word of God is being hurt by, you know, um, and probably hindered in a lot of ways most, not by the, the uh, drug dealers and the prostitutes and the people out in the world. Um, they're not the ones hindering the word of God. I, I worry that today it's organized the, the organized liberal church that is acting like they're religious and that they love Jesus and all this stuff, but they have no knowledge of the word of God. And they align themselves with some of the very shady characters like this guy, Pashur. Um, you know, this guy who's a priest in the temple, he seems like a religious guy, but he's a total loser. And he's the one who's persecuting the true believer, Jeremiah. You know, um, one thing I've noticed is these shady religious people who think, or you know, they talk like they know stuff. You know, they align themselves with shady characters and, um, and boast their brotherhood and their like-mindedness, you know, and it's due to their, you know, broad-mindedness and tolerance. But when it comes to, you know, um, accepting a fundamentalist Christian who believes the literal Bible and takes it word for word as literal, someone who's standing, you know, for the word of God and speaking the truth, um, I found that their broad-mindedness broad, broad and tolerance tends to disappear once they talk to a guy like me who uh, is teaching the word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Um, you know, there's more op opposition in some ways to the furtherance of the gospel that's originating in the organized religious church in some ways, I think, than in the liquor industry or any political group or, um, you know, that I know of today. It's, it's the, um, the physical persecution that Jeremiah uh, was receiving began in the organized religious department. I think that's interesting. And I think it, it could be happening to you as well. Some of you today, I'm just gonna say it, if you believe the Bible and speak the word of the Lord like Jeremiah was doing, there's gonna be people who wanna punch you in the face. Uh, they're gonna make, you know, like you're a stupid idiot, you know, and uh, they'll, they'll be upset with you. And so you need to be more tolerant. And, you know, um, I, I always marvel at what people think and say about this. Now, and there's anybody on the spectrum, you know, it could be the most uh, wacko liberal people that call themselves Christians but are not but it even can be of the true Christian people of different denominations or churches that tend to push against true good doctrine. And so people get all up in a tizzy about this, but the truth is, what do we do? Well, what did Jeremiah do? When he was punched in the face by the religious guy of the day and put in stocks and bonds there in the prison, what did Jeremiah do? Well, he almost gave up. Jeremiah almost hung up his prophet job description but something happened that kept him there. Let's take a look here in chapter 20 and see what happens to Jeremiah. It says in verse four, for thus saith the Lord, behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself. This is what uh, Jeremiah is telling Pashur, who's been given this new name, Megar Misaviv. Um, you're gonna be a passion. Uh, you're gonna be a terror to yourself and to your, all your friends. 
and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies and their eyes shall behold it. And I will give all Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall carry them captive into Babylon and shall slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the strength of this city and all the labors thereof and all the precious things thereof and all the treasures of the kings of Judah will I give into the hand of their enemies which shall spoil them and take them and carry them to Babylon. And thou, Pashur, and all that dwell in thine house shall go into captivity and thou shalt, be, uh, shalt come to Babylon and there thou shalt die and thou shalt be buried there. Thou and all thy friends to whom thou hast prophesied lies. Now, um, Jeremiah just says, Pastor, you're going down, you're gonna be taken. You're not gonna be killed, you're gonna be taken into captivity, but you'll die in Babylon and be buried there. That's the worst thing that could happen to a good Jew. Be buried in Babylon when you die. Well, verse seven, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, Jeremiah says. I was deceived, thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily, everyone mocketh me. He just got punched in the face. Uh, for since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in, in his name. What's Jeremiah saying? Jeremiah, he says, Lord, you know, after talking to this, this Pashur guy, what's going on, Lord? I've been giving your word out, but all I get is these people punching me in the face. He says, I no longer want to speak your word. I give up. That's what he says. But then he says something I find interesting, and this is cool. Verse nine, second part. He says, but his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Jeremiah said, I'm not gonna speak your word ever again, but there was a burning in his bones. Sometimes I get people going, Brett, we're glad you speak boldly. And, and I don't really think of myself as, be, I'm just teaching the Bible and saying what the Bible says. And sometimes I don't even realize, but I, I think people are hungry for the word. So people do come up and I'm, I'm a little bit shocked when people say, Brett, I, we marvel at your boldness. Thank you for being bold. And I, I, I'm kind of like, yeah, okay. But then I, I start realizing, well, maybe it is those punches in the face that I'm getting. It's because I'm being bold. I don't know. So I'm not literally getting punched in the face. Um, I wonder if Jeremiah was a big guy, I doubt it. Uh, he might've been a little dude because they, they felt like they could punch him in the face. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, I've never been punched in the face for a sermon, so that's good. But I have gotten to where you get discouraged when, when you get those spiritual punches where people talk against you or speak ill of you or people you know, write you an email that's all fiery and says, I'd put poison in your tea or whatever. Well, I can relate. The reason why I keep going and people don't have to worry that I'm not gonna keep speaking the Bible is the same reason Jeremiah said. He said, but there's a burning in my bones. He says, the burning and uh, fire shut up in my bones and I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. He couldn't hold back speaking the word of the Lord any longer. Even though he said, I, I'm no longer gonna do it, Lord. I got punched in the face, but there was a burning in his bones. That's, that's something the Lord's put within me is just to teach the Bible through thick and thin, through for better, for worse, no matter where Portland goes, no matter what the Oregon State does, we're just gonna keep preaching the word and speaking the scriptures. Why? Because there's a burning in the bones. The Lord's put that in me and I hope he's put it in some of you as well. By the way, if you think of wanting to be a pastor someday or in ministry, that's something to look for. Do you have a burning in your bones to speak the word of God? Because I think there's guys that never had that burning in their bones. And then they wonder why they don't want to preach the word anymore, but they're a pastor. 
So they start talking about ways to balance your checkbook and how to have a successful family and you know, how to be successful and victorious in your life. But they're not speaking the word of God. They didn't have that burning in their bones. So when they got flack for teaching the truth, they defaulted to stuff that's more fluffy and a little bit less powerful than the actual word of God. So all that to say, we gotta be careful. Look for the young men in this world that have a burning in their bones that will be pastors in the churches and the pulpits today. That's what we need. So he says, I couldn't hold back. I could not stay. Four, verse 10, I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side. Report, say they, and we will report it. All my familiars watched for my halting, saying, peradventure will he be enticed and we shall prevail against him and we shall take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, terrible one. Therefore, my persecutors shall stumble. They shall not prevail. They shall greatly be ashamed for they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten. But O Lord of hosts, that triest the righteous and sees the reins of the hearts, let, uh, let me see thy vengeance on them. For unto thee have I opened my cause. Sing unto the Lord, praise ye the Lord. For he hath delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of evildoers. Uh, it's almost like he's starting to worship the Lord in song because it seems that he has been delivered from, you know, this, this guy that punched him in the face. So he's singing a praise song. Uh, verse 14, cursed be the day um, wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bear me be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father saying, a man child is born unto thee, making him very glad. Jeremiah, is he starting to sound like someone else? Who are the ones in the Bible who said, cursed be the day I was born? Well, Job was one of them. You know, Ezekiel got into this kind of a mind, pardon me, Elijah got into this mindset. Um, the prophet Jonah was all bummed out. It, it seems like that's one of the things uh, that these men that are boldly speaking the truth. Remember Elijah uh, after, uh, you know, killing the prophets of Baal and having that amazing victory there on the Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. Then he slinked off and hid himself in a cave because he was afraid of Jezebel. Wowsy, wowsy, woo, woo, woe is me. This is where Jeremiah's at. The, sometimes the prophets, as they speak boldly, they'd come back exhausted and feeling left alone. And they, they said, cursed be the day I was born. Cursed be my, the day my father heard. You have a son. That's what he's saying. And it's because he's depressed. Don't be shocked that when you minister and you're speaking the truth powerfully, even in, and you have a great victory, you might still find yourself kind of wiped out afterwards. And you gotta go back to the Lord for a recharge. Um, so uh, verse 16, let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not. And let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting in the noontide. Because he slew me not from the womb or that my mother might have been my grave and her womb to be always great with me. Wherefore I came forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame. He ends with a rhetorical question. Was I born just for shame? Um, and the answer seems to be yes. The Lord can make you a vessel, whatever kind of vessel he wants. And Jeremiah was used seemingly as a vessel of shame, but we know better. We know that the Lord used Jeremiah as a great prophet. 
But in the middle of his prophesying and all that stuff, poor Jeremiah was pretty discouraged. So what's he gonna do? Well, we'll pick it up in chapter 21 next week. Uh, there it is. We're, man, we're covering some ground. 17, 18, 19, 20. Whew, four chapters knocking out the book of Jeremiah. That's great. Lord, we do pray that you'd give us faith that goes beyond feelings and emotions, Lord. I pray that um, as Jeremiah finds himself discouraged, thankfully, Lord, you put that burning in his bones just to keep preaching the word in season and out of season. Lord, may the Athe Creekers listening to this be full of your word and be able to speak truth boldly, but also in love. Lord, that we'd never be weary in well-doing for in due season we'll reap a harvest if we faint not. Give us that stick to Protect us from discouragement, Lord. Lord, I know that in these days of coronavirus, so many people with jobs and issues, it's caused such worry and anxiety and depression. I see it all around, Lord, and so many people. But I pray that you'd warm the hearts of the discouraged even tonight. The Lord, like Jeremiah, there's such a bigger picture than just Jerusalem on that day. But you had an eternal plan for the Jews and the ultimate story ends where you rule and reign in Jerusalem and everyone lives happily ever after. Give us faith, Lord, to see the bigger picture. I pray that you'd encourage the downtrodden, lift up the weary soul. Lord, I pray for the people who wanna give up and let go. I pray that tonight you just put a burning in their bones. Stoke up that fire, Lord, tonight as people just wanna serve you and be passionate for you. Lord, you're the only thing that matters. Our walk with you, our love for you, your word, that's the only thing that really matters. So give us eyes to see the invisible, ears to hear your voice. Lord, use us, bless the church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.